0: So if you open your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 4. I know uh, my story wasn't true. I didn't really grow up in Southern California. That would be embarrassing. Um, but uh, and I, I would lie if I did grow up in Southern California. 40, I would just come out and lie about where I did grow up. But um, I, I told you on Sunday mornings we, we, uh, we were going to look at Matthew, the parables through Matthew's gospel. But I wanted to take a, a brief break and look at one from a different gospel, the gospel of Mark. And uh, because this gospel here, or this parable here, is the only unique parable uh, found only in Mark. Uh, Chapter 4 is full of kingdom parables, much like Matthew does, but this is the only one that's unique. So I thought it'd be worth looking at, and one that maybe we don't think of very often, like some of the others we've looked at. So Mark chapter 4, page 885 of your pew Bibles, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The evangelist Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 26. He said the kingdom of God is as if a man scattered seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first a blade then the ear, then full of grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask that you would open up our hearts, we would receive your word, our our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, and our ears that we would hear and heed your word. Open our mouths that we would speak the truth of the gospel and our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience. We be transformed, every part of our being, by Christ, who we celebrate today walking in Jerusalem and leaves triumphant from the grave. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you, how, how well do you sleep? Do you, do you sleep really well or not so well? Many of you all know, uh, really, it started when we moved here to Frankfurt. I'm not saying correlation is causation, but I am saying that. But whenever we started, moving, when we first moved to Frankfurt, my insomnia all of a sudden started to pop up. In fact, this morning, I was up about 4 o'clock this morning uh, and uh, uh, finally went to sleep about 6 the alarm went off an hour later, right? I, 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 why is that? You sleep your best right when the alarm is, is about to go off. But how do you sleep? Chances are, like me, you're, you're probably not sleeping very good each night. According to a January 2020 study, so this is pre-COVID, I can only imagine these numbers are worse, it, it found that nearly 70 million Americans suffer from some sleep disorder. Insomnia is the most common sleep dis- disorder with 30% of adults experiencing at least short-term insomnia. About 10% of people have long-lasting insomnia. About 40% of people report accidentally falling asleep during the day, or if you go to church regularly, that number's probably a little higher minus the accidentally part. About 5% report falling asleep while driving, and about 35% of adults of adults get less than 7 hours of sleep. At night. So you heard it here. Next time your boss complains that you're sleeping too much, or your parents complaining you're sleeping too much, tell them the preacher said you need more sleep. Well, in a sermon he preached a number of years ago, that uh, to go for the Gospels, the last time I was able to go to that conference, John MacArthur preached this text and he called it A Theology of Sleep. And I kind of like that uh, because when you really think about it, one of the central things that happens in this narrative because it's kind of a boring narrative, is it involves the main character sleeping. He works, then he goes to bed. And for the most part, that is the parable. There isn't a whole lot of action going on. It's very brief, just three or four verses. But he sows, and then he sleeps. Let's look at that illustration a little closer. Again, of, of all the parables that Mark has in chapter 4, parallels Matthew 13 in that they are kingdom parables and that, that it, it is, they're clumping together, Matthew and Mark, clumping together a series of parables that Jesus gave on the kingdom of God. And so we looked at all of them in Matthew's account uh, starting the first of the year, and it took us several weeks to get through them. Well, this is Mark's version. But right here in the middle, he has a parable that is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And, and its message is quite simple God's kingdom is God's work it really is just pretty straightforward God's kingdom is God's work now now once again we also have here yet another agricultural parable which which is, is more of a struggle for you and I being in 21st century uh, we, we were a bunch of uh, uh, white-collar uh, state employees rather than state workers I've learned there is a difference and and uh, but but at this time we see that, that everyone grew up in an agricultural society, and everyone would have understood that. And, and we see some parallels with what we've seen before. In the first nine verses, we see the parable of the sower. You remember that, right? really should be called the parable of the soils. A, a sower went out to sow seed. Some landed on rocky and thorny and good soil and all, all, all that sort of stuff. In verses 30 to 34, the, the very next one's another agricultural parable. This is the parable of the mustard seed. A guy goes out and he sows, in particular, mustard seed. And, and uh, it's, it's just a little bit, and, and yet 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 it grows. So it shouldn't surprise us Jesus is uh, using uh, such a parable. But, but I want us to, to note that this guy, he does three things in totality. Three things in this entire parable. The first thing he does is He sows. He sows. Uh, You see there in verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man scattered seed on the ground. He simply sowed seed. So again, it's like the parable of the soils. A sower went out to sow, and the kingdom of God is compared to a man who goes out to sow seed. Now, presumably, this is good seed, right? There's not weeds, all that sort of stuff. We put all that stuff away. He is sowing good seed. Now, notice here, we have no other details about this. We're not told how long he does it. We're not told how, how, how many days or, or, or hours or whatever. He just goes out and he sows seed. We're, we're, not, we're not told when he chooses to do this. We don't know what kind of tractor he used. No doubt it was a Mazzy Ferguson, but certainly not that ugly green one. Uh, we don't know what kind of fertilizer he used, right? We don't, we don't know any of that sort of stuff. All we know is he went out and he sowed seed because all those other details don't matter. Doesn't affect the text. Doesn't affect the interpretation. Certainly, as we would see, would not affect the application. He just sows. You'll notice starting in verse twenty-seven. He then goes to bed. He sows and he sleeps. He sleeps and rises night and day. After a long day out in the field, he goes to bed. I don't know if, if you've ever had a job on a farm or some sort of manual labor sort of work in construction or, or some other blue-collar job to where it is very intensive, it is very sweaty and hard. You come home smelling like the, smelling like the earth, right? I've, I've, I've had some of those, and I've done some, some uh, uh, you know, working in tobacco and stuff, and, and uh, uh, I know what it's like to come home, and all you want to do is shower, eat, and go to bed. Right. That's it. Because the next day you got to get up before the sun and you got to start all over again. In fact, I think every young man uh, anymore, I, I, I think of every young person in general should have at least one of two jobs, preferably both, but at least one of two jobs. Work on a farm or join the military. At this point, <laughs> I think we've reached that point. Find a farm and live there for three years or join, a, join the military. But that's just my opinion. And you can take it or, or leave it. But nevertheless, it's, it, it is an it incredible is a, 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 a detail here. He, he does nothing but sow. He is faithful to it. He has one responsibility, sow seed in the field, and he does nothing else. And at the end of the day, he simply goes to bed. It simplifies everything, doesn't it? He has one job. He does it, goes to bed. Well, that's, that's living the good life there, right? There's, you don't have to get caught up in his Netflix stuff. There's no drama in his life. He's not worried about the election. You gonna get up. It's going to sow. It's going to go to bed. Notice the third thing he does. If we skip down to verse 29, he harvests. So but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I mean, this makes sense, right? Uh, after he sows, eventually you must harvest. Uh, that, that's, that's pretty straightforward. And I have no doubt that after he harvests, he goes back to bed. And that's the end of the parable. A sower sows, he goes to bed, and then he goes and harvests. That's it. I mean, that, that, that's basically it, right? Now, you will notice we, we skipped a few verses. And that, that's worth highlighting there because there, there is some mystery in here. And, and Jesus wants us to see this. And notice there at the, at the end of verse 27 that while he sleeps, the seed sprouts and grows. Now, Jesus doesn't mean that it happens magically here, that, that, that it's, it's just happening overnight, right? It's not like the elves, you know, you remember the story, uh, you go to bed and elves fix everything, the shoes and all that sort of stuff. He's, he's not thinking like that, right? As I say, the assumption is that as the days go by and as he works in all the other fields and he's doing everything you, you have to do, he may be pulling weeds, he may be uh, working in fertilizer, he may be spraying insecticide, I don't know, but, but, but he's not saying that he just woke up one day and there's the plant, right? That's not what he's saying at all. But at the same time, I do think we, we, we understand this, this language, right? Parents understand this. How often do, do you and I ever look at our kids and say, I can't believe our baby boy and our baby girl are getting so big, right? And it, 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 it annoys them, which is why we say it in the first place, right? Um, I think they grow overnight, I remember particularly uh, my parents saying that to me when I had adolescence, um, I, I, you know, especially when you pass them in height, right, every 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 quarter inch you grow feels like three inches. I think you went to bed and, and grew up. We can't keep keep, keep your shoes, you know, keep shoes that fit or britches that fit or any of that sort of stuff. It seems like it happens overnight. One of the things I like to do to torture my wife is uh, on Facebook and on our Amazon Photos. It does memories, right? So where you were this day, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and I particularly like it when it involves the kids when they were babies. And I like to say, "Hey, look, look, you remember this ten years ago? You remember this five years ago?" And she, oh, and all, all that nonsense. And and I always say, "Yeah, that was back when they were cute." <laughs> and it just bothers. They're still cute, like. No, no, they're not. I mean, think about it. We could get away with anything when they were little. Now they're just kids, right? I mean, it's nice to have around, but but you're afraid that if they come to your house, they're going to tear things up, right? There is a difference. If a toddler tears up your house, you're like, well, at least they're cute doing it. If if a 12-year-old does it, right, you despise me now, right? So so there is, there is a difference. But, uh, you know, but... Uh, Nevertheless, that's basically what he's saying is, is it seems like overnight uh, that the plant just just grows. And, and certainly that's the perspective of the sower, uh, that it seems to grow by itself. And notice there in verse 27, at the very end, into verse 28, it says, How it grows, he himself does not know. <laughs> Look at there, first century carpenter. What does he know about planting stuff? Let me tell you how it grows, right? And I'll throw in fancy words like photosynthesis, which I remember from school meant something in my public education, and all these other fancy terms, right? We, we, we can explain how all of this happens. There's Jesus, the creator, doesn't even know how a plant grows. Aren't I better than him? <sighs> Okay, moving on, right? I mean, that's typically how we read this sort of stuff. We read it as 21st century people rather than taking the text, certainly. Now, obviously, we, we know more about the specific process, but, but that's not the point, right? It's, it's, we know what Jesus is saying here. You can know how something grows, but at the same time, there's a mystery within it, right? Like, I don't care how smart you are or how studied you are. Life stemming from a seed seems mysterious to me. Here's a seed I bought at the dollar store. I put it in the ground. Amazing things happen. All of a sudden, I've, I've got a tree. I've, I've got strawberries. I've got whatever it might be. That's always going to be a mystery to me. How it is that, 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 that two souls can come together and create life. You can look at the science of it, but it's still a mystery to me. There's a reason why that, that at, the, at birth we say this is a miracle. Now, are there natural processes? Of course there are. But at the same time, we understand there is something deeper happening there. You see, it's one thing to, to explain the what. What happens and, and what follows after that. I think there is, it's another question to explain the metaphysical how. How is it that this seed, when it encounters this soil does this and it's one of the problems with modern science and why the, the genesis of, of, of science began from a christian faith and it, we want to know how is it that god causes this it isn't saying that god says okay seed so grow right but rather we say that god has created such an ordered world that we can actually study it but the the understanding was in order to understand the physical you must have a metaphysical behind it you must have have the, the philosophy that, that there is a divine god over everything but the point is to demonstrate that all that the man does is sow, and nature takes care of the rest of the work. In this sense, we could say the farmer does nothing. He sows, he goes to bed. He harvests that which is grown, and he goes to bed. So what do we do with it? One of the things I think you've noticed with some of these parables, and not all of them, is that Jesus tells us a story and he moves on to the next story. And you're thinking, we'll pause, right? Then we'll go back on that DVR. I need you to explain to me what in the world's going on here. I think this is a good example of one. It's a story of a guy who spends half the parable asleep. We can call him a Southern Baptist deacon on a Sunday morning, right? He just sows, sleeps, harvests, sleeps. Well, in order for us to, 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 to interpret this, we need to—the key is back here to verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Notice, this is yet another kingdom parable. This entire chapter is, is kingdom parables. The kingdom of God is like a, is like a sower who went out to sow in a field. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a, a net full of fish. The kingdom of God is, is like this and like that. So we must interpret in light of the kingdom, particularly in the kingdom parables— so who is the par- who is the sower, we should say? Who is the sower? Well, he is the one that brings, uh, he not only sows, but he brings in the harvest. He, he, he is both. Certainly that, that is clear. And I want you to notice something. This is key to interpret in this parable, I believe. The sower is secondary. The sower is secondary to the growth. That's the point, isn't it? He simply sows. But the main action of the parable happens while he is in bed. He's asleep. He doesn't do anything. He just sows. So the identity of the sower is secondary. And what the sower does is secondary to what happens when the seed is planted. So in other words, what we need to see is that he is faithful in sowing. God, we could say, gives the growth. In that context, does it really matter who the sower is? It could be anyone. After all, a sower is anyone who sows seed. You don't have to go to school to sow seed. You can go to Walmart or wherever you want to do get you some seed. You can stand on the middle of our parking lot and do it. I don't know why you would. Stand out in the middle of the field if you want to do it. But anyone who sows seed is a sower. It could be anybody. Doesn't matter your degrees or the lack thereof. Anyone can sow seed. So God gives birth. Therefore, the identity of the sower doesn't matter. For example, a number of years ago, I'm, I'm I'm not a big fan of him, but you got to uh, recognize his skill. That whenever LeBron James, NBA player, uh, left the Miami Heat, remember when he was in Miami Heat, he had a lot of people around him who were quite talented. But he left Miami Heat and he returned to Cleveland Cavaliers. And I, I remember watching this on on the Sports Center or something. They and they did a, a betting odds thing that Cleveland Cavaliers went from being they had no chance of winning a national championship. So now that LeBron signed a contract with him, they were the number one choice of winning the national championship. You know what that means? Nothing else matters about the Cleveland Cavaliers but that one player. No one cared about who the coach was. No one cared about uh, people in the front office. No one really cared about who the other players around them were. If you had him, you had a chance to succeed. And that's pretty much what happened. Because the second he left the Cleveland Cavaliers to, to go to the LA Lakers, guess what happens? The Cavaliers went back to irrelevance, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is what happens. So, too, the identity of this sower, so long as God gives the growth, is secondary. So what's the point? What, what's the point of this entire parable? I think it's very simple. You and I have one job. Sow seed. You and I have one job. In this context, it's the same application as the parable of the soils. Sower, one job. Sow seed. Sometimes in in that parable, it landed on good soil, sometimes bad. Regardless, the job is to sow seed. Here we have another sower who sows seed. But now he goes to bed trusting that his work will pay off. Though it may be a mystery to him, he believes by faith that he is faithful in sowing. God will be faithful in giving growth. This parable should be an encouragement to Jesus' followers. After all, notice what follows next. He says, if you sow seed and are faithful to it, God will give the growth. And what's next? It looks like now the kingdom of God is small, like a mustard seed. But trust the process. Trust God. And what you'll find is that tiny seed will grow so large that the birds will 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 nest in its branches. This is to be an encouragement to the Jesus follower. You and I have one job in this world. It's not your job to get candidates elected. It's not your job to fix all the world's problems. It's not your job to be brilliant, famous, or infamous. Your job is to sow the seed of the kingdom. Again, verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man was sowed seed. Your job is to sow the seeds of the kingdom. And if you do your job and then go to bed by faith, God will give the growth. To be clear, this is not a license of passivity in outreach or evangelism. Rather, it is a reminder that our responsibility is faithfulness and to be faithful in surrendering and, and finding rest in him in the end. So at the end of the day, we see here, God alone saves sinners. It is God's work to regenerate the hearts of sinners. It is our job to point people to the Redeemer. We don't need to manipulate people to the kingdom of God. God's spirit is sufficient to save sinners. Very simple application here. But, but, uh, but two questions I think we, we should ask ourselves when, when we look at this, this passage very quickly. Number one, are we faithfully sowing? If, if, if the point of the parable is to say, you and I are called to sow and then go to bed and trust that God will take care of all the other details. If that is our job, then the question we should ask ourselves coming to this text is, have I been faithful and am I currently faithful in sowing seed? Carl F. H. Henry once said that the good news is only good news if it arrives there in time. For decades, the American church has chosen pragmatism and consumerism over holiness and faithfulness. You and I have one job. Be faithful. Sow the kingdom. Point people to the king. Why then do we waste so much of our time on lesser things at the cost of the most important thing? Think about it. If you had a job and and, and you had one primary function as part of that job and maybe uh, with that job, maybe your your boss allow you to do some of these other things, help in these other fields, but not at the cost of the main job, right? You have one job. Now, if you focus on these little things at the cost of the main thing, you're going to be fired. Now you were hired for this. So, too, it isn't bad to, to, to see that there are other things that may need to be done, but we are to focus on this one thing. But what have we done as Christians for the last decades and perhaps even century or more is we've been so engaged with these lesser things at the cost of the greatest thing. The world is called to worship. But because we do not worship, we as the church are called to missions. We have one job. Be Faithful. If we spend as much time sewing as we do panicking in front of our TV, oh no, someone has a press conference and I don't like what was said. Oh no, the wrong guy was elected and I didn't vote for him. Oh no, someone said something to hurt my feelings. Oh no, they're changing the dictionary again. I can't keep up with it. If we spend as much time sewing by faith as we do panicking in front of the TV, would we need to panic in front of our TV? If we spend as much time praying for lost souls and praying for God's kingdom to come, would anxiety, anger, worry, stress dominate our souls? If we were faithful, will we not also be more fruitful? So are we we faithfully sowing? Secondly, are we confident in Christ? Are we confident in Christ? My, my mother always, you know, to, to this day, if, if, if it's snowing outside and there's ice outside or the weather's really bad, she ain't going nowhere. Right? She, 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 there's reasons for that that don't matter, but she's she not going to go anywhere. But I heard her, I've heard her say several times before that if, if her father was driving, her dad was a, was a truck driver for decades, retired as a truck driver, uh, uh, drove for a roadway and, and, and all that. And he, but she said, but, but if he were driving, I don't worry about all that other stuff. He could drive through anything. It didn't matter how bad the snow was, how bad the visibility, how much ice was on the road. If he was driving, I'd be OK. I'm willing to bet that you too, when you, you were growing up, right? you could be convinced there were monsters in the closets, scary creatures under the bed. It, it starting to sound like a VeggieTales song. It, right, it didn't matter. Someone was trying to break in. But if you were closer to your parents. I would, afraid to wake them up, I would just grab a pillow and a blanket and sleep at the foot of their bed and they'd step on me whenever they went to work. But I felt safe because I was confident in their ability to take out any monster who may try to eat me. So let me ask you are you confident in Christ? If God has the whole world in his hands, then does he not have everything under control? Like your life? Like your circumstances? Like your country? like the next election, like the church, like your neighbors, like his kingdom? When we run around scared to death all the time, what are we confessing to the rest of the world? Oh, Jesus is a big God. He just ain't big enough for my problems. You won't find that anywhere in the gospel. To live by faith is then to live with freedom. At the end of the day, we control nothing. You got one job, so be faithful and then go to bed. Let God take care of the rest of the work. This is the problem with a lot of churches over these last decades. We've bought a consumeristic model for a consumeristic culture and wonder why the people in our churches look and act like consumers. Well, the music isn't what it used to be. I think I'll go somewhere else well, I think I need to have a long conversation with the preacher because, you know, we've got places to be. What have we done? Instead of faithfully sowing, we revealed we had no confidence in Christ to begin with. We control nothing. Anxiety is the refusal to surrender to God who is already in control. Is your confidence in Christ? if you will faithfully so, then I believe you and I can confidently lean in to Christ. He doesn't promise you anything. He doesn't promise us anything. He doesn't promise this church anything. We have one job. Let's do it. And then let's go to bed. Trust that He will have it all under control. One other thing I think, I think we shouldn't miss here, Whether we're looking at the parable of the soils, which begins chapter 4, or this parable, which begins in verse 26, or even some of the others is. That's the detail of the sower. There's nothing impressive about him. It's not about his marketing tools or his education or the skill he has or what sort of home he grew up in. It's not about any of that. In fact, we should assume he is weak. We should assume that he doesn't know much else other than to sow. Which is the good news, right? God uses weak people to do amazing things. In 1934, a Louisville native became, began a three-month evangelistic sting in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was one of those old school fire and brimstone preachers. You, you know, the ones that foam at the mouth and all that sort of stuff. And he's just letting it go. And he, he was particularly had this one run revival going on and, and people were, were just flocking. He was just preaching Christ, and many people got saved. And he called people to, to repent of their immoral lifestyle, you know, all that sort of stuff. A few weeks in, into this, a teenage boy visited one of the tent meetings. He wanted to see what all the hoop law was a, was about, and he was memorized by the preacher. He was challenged. So he decided to return again and again. He eventually embraced Christ. The man's name who was converted in series of revivals was a man named Billy Graham. Do you know the evangelist's name? It's the point. It's the point. He had one job. Sow the seed. Go to bed. Got to take care of the rest. So this day we remember Mordecai Ham for one thing. The conversion of one person. But the truth is, there are many other people who can trace the genesis of their faith to that one person. Who faithfully sowed and he went to bed. What about you? Let's pray.